In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Okay, so let's let's be honest. Let's be uh, open and forthcoming and like um so the first two classes were just sort of were more like overviews and contextualizations and so forth. And now we got like deep into the miraculous life of Mipom. And uh, admittedly, it was very different from the biographies of people like uh, Marpa and Milarepa that had actual personal content to it. Now, presumably, we may find some of that in the next chapter on the hidden life. But our people, uh, how do people feel about it so far? Uh, like, in particular, the readings for tonight. A lot of lists of practices and texts, and yeah, just endless. <laughs> Not not that interesting to read these huge. It's like mind-boggling. How could this guy possibly have accomplished all these practices and done all these things? And it might be like more compelling if like we knew what those things were. Maybe I don't know. I mean, Maybe. I don't know. just speaking for myself, I don't know what those practices actually are. So yeah. Well, we can talk a little bit about them. I don't know them specifically either, but I know practices that are similar, and, I, and I'm pretty sure they're fairly similar. But any other thoughts, comments, reactions? Boring, exciting, tedious, interesting. Should we skip to the to the texts in the back and spend more time on the texts? I don't know. Um... But what I do know is that I felt like I was venerating this person, but I didn't know why, you know. It, it, uh, it, it didn't sit comfortably with me because it was just so over the top in terms of adoration. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit much. And Wrong. is this what it means to be enlightened? Do we have, you know... I missed that last part. Do we have? Is this what this is? This what it means to be enlightened? Yeah, got to go through all of this. Study uh, <laughs> in twenty four seven in a cave. Uh, well, different people have different ways of getting enlightened, but to be completely enlightened, it does require you know unthinkable, unimaginable levels of uh, cultivation or accumulation of merit and wisdom. 
whereas path of seeing type enlightenment is not is not like that you know the bodhisattva and the buddha level of enlightenment is uh as we've seen from other courses it's kalpas you know endless aeons of accumulation and uh, the, so the vajrayana path provides this way of accumulating these merit merits and uh, wisdoms in a much faster time but you know so one of the questions is is he, he's he's already like fully you know so advanced and why do so many different practices why just can keep practicing continuously is is he gaining is it needed or it, or what's the purpose of doing like so many different practices any thoughts on that well what i found interesting was you, know, you can go around you can get empowerments and you can do chants and it can be meaningless but it's with nipam to read between the lines he's actually doing something with these things and i think in the context of who he was and where he was he was doing that for other people in a way like I'm doing these practices too, but on top of that, you know, he's doing the analytical, the rational writing and commentary and stuff. So, you know, I went to, I did one of those empowerments and I laughed and all these people suddenly showed up that I'd never seen before. <laughs> yeah. Like why, did, why are people so interested in empowerments? Uh, but you touched upon something that I think is really uh, one of the more interesting points is that somebody like Mipom, he doesn't do, need to do another practice, another 300,000 or million of this deity or that deity. But my, uh, my limited understanding of it is he's actually accomplishing these practices because then they somehow they then become more accessible to other people to do those practices not to do all of them not to do a lot of them but like to pick one of them and do them it, it's sort of like if if one person does them and completes them it creates this link with that deity as a pathway to enlightenment and then he can then transmit that to others and, uh, you know, give them one practice, give somebody one practice to do that he's sort of reinforced uh, uh, the uh, efficacy of by having done it himself. Um, but uh, that that's sort of my understanding and that wasn't expressed in the text at all. But 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 that's basically part of the whole remake project that they were doing was that revival or main, maintenance of all these different lineages right yeah except it wasn't really uh it wasn't contextualized that way i mean maybe we'll see that in the next two chapters where he then transmits these practices to students in a, in a and, and accomplishes what you're talking about. But what the Rime masters of Jungle Control and Kensei and Chokshir Lingpa did is they uh, went about and received transmissions for obscure practices that nobody had the transmission for. Got it, Neil, thank you. 
um, and and they did the practice as a way of like reawakening those practices for others to be able to do and then they transmitted huge amounts of them so like what what John Mukontrol did is he created this compendium of all these Abhishekas, all these Abhishekas being empowerments to do certain sadhana practices and um, and thereby he gave all of these other students who would many of whom would then become teachers someday the ability to transmit as needed this one practice or that one practice that either uh, was sort of helpful in a particular situation which is a lot of what Tantra is about and it's not really the way that we've come to understand that from Trump Rinpoche his, his approach is more like a uh, one practice uh, brings re results in all ways whereas uh, much of the tantric tradition is is you do a, a certain practice and achieve a certain specific type of capability or result like um, ability to extend your life or ability or ability to overcome a disease you're suffering from or ability to overcome uh, certain environmental negative forces and so they they had received hundreds and actually literally thousands of different abhishekas in this thing called the Rinchen Terza, the Treasury of Precious Treasures, which is one of the five great treasures of Jamga Kongchul, where he compiled over 3,000 different empowerments. And they would transmit them as a, as a group. And then everybody that got them could then pick out any one of those 3,000 and do them themselves, because they had the transmission, or give them to somebody else to do. Um... And and so I think what Cynthia said is correct, even though it wasn't brought out so far in the text, is that Mipom was doing what the other masters of the Rime did, in that they were um, sort of reawakening the connection to all these different yadams, all these different deity practices, by doing them themselves. And and if if you read the biography of John Mukongshul, he also did numerous sadhana practices as did Kensei the Great and Chokchur Lingpa. So it's this bizarre uh, sort of activity that we're, we're really not familiar with of um, these enlightened masters doing practices totally for the benefit of others. That by them doing it, it like creates this uh, karmic availability for others to do them as opposed to to them needing to do them for their, their own benefit, which uh, is, is something sort of foreign to us. But why don't, why don't we uh, consider uh, my question of, like, should we just skip to the text? Going you know, and, and let's go through the material for this class and think about it and then circle back on it and the end of the class is like... Uh, you know, the next chapters are a hidden life, which 
does sound more interesting <laughs> than the, the stuff we went through today. So it would be a shame to skip that. And then uh, activities for the doctrine of beings and a final deed, obviously, well, not obviously, but it looks like the final deed is passing away, but who knows? Maybe it was some great deed. But maybe, um, maybe we can pair up like a combination of the text at the back with a chapter from the life going forward. Uh, so it's not just like endless um, Superman uh, episodes one after another. You know, he saves the world in this way by jumping over tall buildings or going faster than speeding bullet and so forth. Uh, so let's see, where are we? Starting on page 34. It was a lot of reading also. <laughs> if you actually read through it. So I'm going to try to skip through and and highlight parts of it, which is always way more difficult than going through each of it. So it's going to be a little bit choppy. And feel free to jump in. And if they're, you know, skim along with me, I'll, I'll have gaps where I'm silent for periods, which I don't usually do. And, uh, you know, skim along. And if you see things that you're interested in, let me know. Also, there's some interesting notes in the back. And I know Mary Beth is always really good with the notes. So I'm going to depend entirely upon her for that. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, so study and reflection on page 33. So uh, he visits uh, this this teacher named Lopkjadnan. Never heard of him. Sorry. A lot of the teachers that are mentioned, I've at least heard of, but I was surprised. Never heard of this one that was really praised very highly. Um, uh, so then after that, he encounters uh, Patro Rinpoche. So at least we know Patro Rinpoche. How do we know Patro Rinpoche? Patro Rinpoche is the author of a book called The uh, Words of My Perfect Teacher, which is uh, an amazing presentation of the outer and inner preliminary practices of Tibetan Buddhism. So the preliminary practices of Tibetan Buddhism means the practices that you do to go from Sutrayana practice of like Shamatha Vipassana and loving kindness and Tonglen to uh, sadhana practices. And the, the preliminaries include two sets of activities. The first one is called the outer or common preliminaries. And that's the four, the practice of the four reminders, um, impermanence, death, suffering of samsara, uh, sorry, precious human birth. I'm, I'm totally out of it. Precious human birth is the first one. Second one is impermanence and death. Third one is the sufferings of samsara. And the fourth one is karma, the activity of karma, the infallibility of karma. And so one uh, co uh, contemplates those as the basis for doing further practice. And those generate uh, both aspiration and, and a sense of preciousness of the opportunity to practice in terms of precious human birth. And then uh, the other three are basically generating renunciation. And that, that, that drive, that energy that drives us to 
take time out of our busy day and meditate and study and uh, not in, in the course of our day not give in to habitual patterns of, uh, of uh, irritations and aggressions and fixation and grasping as much as we can because we understand that we're, by doing all those things we're perpetuating the cycle of hope and fear and suffering and pain and loss even as much as we might enjoy things at the moment and uh, so pronunciation is the f is the foot of meditation as we say in the in our kagyu tradition and it's the very foundation upon which we then embark on the rest of the path and so the vajrayana starts with revisiting that in a big way and then it has what are called the four inner preliminary practices or nundro which means entering the door or the doorway and that includes uh, taking refuge and rousing bodhicitta in a ritual way which uh, means combining the recitation of the refuge vow and the bodhicitta aspiration with the activity of physical prostration and then the second one is uh, doing a purification practice called Vajrasattva that's based on the deity Vajrasattva, the uh, embodiment of complete purity, uh, acknowledging our habitual patterns, our negative tendencies, and resolving to not perpetuate them further is the second one. It's called generally referred to as mantra practice because we repeat the hundred what's called the hundred syllable mantra of Vajrasattva, and then the third one is um, uh, called mandala practice. And in the third practice, we visualize our entire existence and our world, whatever world and existence we habit, uh, inhabit. Um, as a mandala, as, a, as an arrangement of um, precious opportunity. And we offer that up to the three jewels. We give away all of everything that we view as precious and desirable as a way of showing our um, respect for the, for the Dharma, for the teachings, and appreciation for the teachings and also accumulating merit just um, uh, cultivating that sense of generosity of sharing of letting go of our holding on to our pos uh, literally our possessions and metaphorically our existence our mind our meanness our sense of me and then the fourth inner preliminary practice is called guru yoga guru being the teacher i'm sorry oh, sorry, I just, sorry. <laughs> no, no problem it made a very funny sound when it when the mute went off um i, I thought maybe it was something like bob dylan you were going to chime in and with you know the 80th birthday of uh, anyway <laughs> um the fourth one is guru yoga and yoga is union 
joining with, merging with, and the idea is to merge with the teacher and the teacher um, in the in the form of the three kayas. Trikaya, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, and the rest of the lineage of that teacher. Um, and, and that way, sort of connecting uh, um, as much as possible in a direct way with one's teacher and one's lineage of teachers. And uh, so he wrote a very famous presentation of that, of those uh, preliminary practices, the eight of them, and um, was also very famous for teaching the, the way of the Bodhisattva like a hundred times during his lifetime. He would go wherever he would go, he would do that, and also for being extremely humble and uh, um, into uh, not having possessions. He did this practice of giving away all your possessions like 10 times or something during his lifetime he would give us like whatever you know people had given to him and he accumulated this and that or he would give teachings and people would give him offerings and he would immediately like give it away to the, the monastery he was at or to his teachers or this and that and he would keep just his own robes his staff and his begging bowls you know and like a stapler or uh you know, like in, in Steve Martin in that movie, that you know, the jerk where it's like, I don't need anything. I just, just sorry. <laughs> um, so he was very famous for having done that Pachyrum Shane. And there's this famous story where this old woman is traveling along the road to go to some big monastery to hear Pachyrum Shane speak. And she meets this, uh, this uh, elderly gentleman along the way who's t dressed in like tattered tatters tattered robes and obviously very poor and humble and they team up and travel together the whole way and then when they get to the monastery he disappears and she's like what happened to that guy and next thing she knows, she sees him up on the throne, and that's the guy that she traveled with. It turns out to be Pachurimsha. So he traveled totally incognito, you know, in total poverty, and, you know, just totally humbly. So, anyway, he... Uh, he studies with Patro Rinpoche, and he he receives the teachings on the Bodhicharavatara, the way of the Bodhisattva by Shanti Deva, from uh, Patro Rinpoche. And based upon that, he writes this famous commentary on the Wisdom ninth chapter of the Bodhicharavatara, the ninth chapter being on wisdom, and uh, which becomes very controversial. And we'll see that uh, mentioned a number of times throughout these chapters and probably others and um, so some so I'll try to highlight some of the more interesting little tidbits so in the paragraph in the bottom of 34 it says most especially Mipom attended with three kinds of pleasing service so there's all these like systems of like this and that and this is one of them you know how do you how do you serve the teacher or serve the Dharma more really and it's like you make material offerings um, or you offer service you do things to help the, the Dharma propagation of the Dharma and then you practice uh, the ultimate 
uh, service, the ultimate way to serve the, your teacher, is to put your teacher's teachings into practice, interestingly enough. And Trungpa Rinpoche talked about that a lot. Um, and he studies lots of different things, including these texts by Maitreya. And while there's an enormous number of different texts and practices listed in these, um, I'm going to take the opportunity to to try to encourage you to become familiar with one set of texts that are very famous, which is, um, and this is in addition, hopefully, to the five texts that form the Shedra curriculum, which are on the, the Rime Shedra website and um, are, are the, the main texts that are studied by all the schools in their, in their Shedra curriculums. And those five texts are the Treasury of Abhidharma by Vasubandhu. You know, so a, a really thorough presentation of Abhidharma. And uh, the second one is the commentary on what's called valid cognition, which in, incorporates uh, the ways of the ways that we know things, either by sense perception or by conceptual knowledge, and how we use uh, conceptual knowledge to be to uh, attain a definitive understanding of the true nature of reality, such that it can lead us to a. a non-conceptual experience of not of uh, the nature of reality so that's the second one the commentary on violent cognition which includes also logical reasoning <clears throat> and the third one is the introduction to the middle way and i'm sorry the commentary on valid cognition is by by a, a gentleman named dharma kirti And the third one is the introduction to the middle way by Chandra Kirti, which is the basic textbook on Madhyamaka. And the fourth one is called uh, the ornament of higher realization. It's uh, attributed to Maitreya, and uh, that. That text presents the stages of the path in uh, in great detail and in uh, um, all sorts of different ways. And then the fifth text is a text on Vinaya, which for us is not that relevant, and why the Rimeshedra New York City, I've replaced that with the text on meditation by Kamala Sheila called the stages of meditation. But you'll see mentioned throughout this, and in many places, this notion of there being these five texts by Maitreya, called the five dharmas of Maitreya. And so uh, while the five texts I just went through are the core curriculum of all four Buddhist schools of Shedra in Tibet, three of those schools include the five texts of Maitreya as well in their curriculum. And there's there's a simple way to, to or a, sim, a simple little scheme, there's a scheme that helps simplify the five texts of Maitreya and help you remember what they are. There's 
Two of them are ornaments. Two of them, two of them are differentiations. And then there's one um, ultimate text. So the the ornaments are the first one is the ornament of higher realization, which I just mentioned, that goes through the paths. And then there's the ornament of Mahayana Sutras, which is a, an amazing compendium of quotes from different Mahayana, all the different Mahayana Sutras arranged schematically in, in a very like amazing way. You know, so it's like, it's like a con compendium of essential excerpts from the Mahayana Sutras. Uh, in case you're not familiar with the Mahayana Sutras, the Mahayana Sutras, um, pro if they were, or when they are all translated, they will probably um, equal somewhere in the range of 100,000 pages. So, you know, obviously to read that is absurd. So by doing a compendium, it's a great service <laughs> to people who are interested in those texts. And then um, <clears throat> there's two differentiations. One is differentiating the middle from extremes. And the extremes are the usual extremes of uh, nihilism or nihilism and eternalism. You know, so finding what is the middle way view as opposed to what are the extremes that we generally fall into. And then the, the second uh, differentiator or differentiating distinguisher is distinguishing um, dharma. Dharma is in the sense of uh, the elements of the relative world from pure being. Dharma Dhatu, distinguishing Dharma and Dharma Dhatu. And then the last one, the ultimate presentation is the uh, the unsurpassed continuum of uh, Buddha nature. And that's the key text, sort of source text on Buddha nature. And it's translated variously in English, but it's the uh, it's it's really the unsurpassed or un um, unsurpassable continuum. So anyway, two uh, distinguishings. Sorry, two ornaments, two distinguishings, and then one uh, ultimate continuum. And you'll see him having studied those uh, in a number of places. And those are, you know, those are the main ones that ideally people on our level of uh, capability, given that we work and we live in the real world and we don't live in a monastery or a cave and <laughs> um, that, you know, we actually might have uh, uh, realistically have or I hope we might have the aspiration and capability of studying those these uh, nine or, or so texts because there's an overlap of one text.
Um, so he encounters his main guru, uh, Jomgyun Kensei Wangpo, uh, one of the three main remain meditation masters on page 35 and studies his teachings assiduously in particular, receives those teachings. He also connects with Jomun Kongshul, the great Lodro Tae, and um, studies grammar. And, you know, the, as we saw in the, in the last couple of classes, he just studies everything. And uh, then we have a long list of teachers on page 36 that he receives teachings from. And... Uh, he he accomplishes, on page 37 we see this reference to an accomplishment of what are called the Eight Treasures which is something that is not seen that often in in uh, the writings in Buddhist literature, basically, but comes from this text called, that, that's, the translators here are portrayed as the vast display, but it's a, it's a biography of the Buddha, a Mahayana version of the biography of the Buddha. And uh, in it, it's, presents this, this notion of the Buddha having, uh, in, in addition to the more standard list of qualities that the Buddha has, which he has ten powers and he has eight types of fearlessnesses, that he also accomplishes these eight treasures. And it's an unforgetting memory, memory the treasure of intelligence, um, the treasure of assurance, and so forth. I, I probably I skipped a bunch of them somehow. The treasure of dharani, which is the retention of all that's been heard. Not sure how that differs from unforgetting memory. Um, the treasure of understanding through assimilation of the sense, which apparently is different than the treasure of understanding of remembering the words. You know, so just like um, to, to a large extent, it's another like odd list that's rather repetitive, but um, very few people are said to have achieved these, and it was like a huge compliment to say that Mipom had achieved these, and he writes about them in various places, which is sort of unusual. Um, so on page 38, we start to, to get introduced to his extraordinary uh, abilities uh, that were characterized as those eight treasures, where it says in the, in the first full paragraph towards the bottom, it says, Mipar merely listened to the reading transmission of the adornment of the middle way. So that's the text by Maitreya, one of those five. It's one of the two adornments or ornaments. Ornament and adornment are two different translations of the same term. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I confused it. This... The other one was the ornament or adornment of the Mahayana Sutras. This is the adornment of the Middle Way, which is his commentary on uh, Shantarakshita's texts. But then you have the two differentiations. So he merely listened to them, and then he immediately again was able to expound them in great detail. And, and this happens a number of times as we read through this, that he just 
uh, either receives one time the sort of root transmission of a text and then is able to explain it to others in great detail. Or uh, there's another scene where he borrows like uh, a number of volumes of, this, of the of the uh, the canon, what's called the canon, the collected teachings of the Buddha, and he just like skims through it and uh, returns them in a few days, and his attendant is like stunned and like. Uh, and I've heard other versions of that story where the, the attendant says, "Oh, so you decided not to read them?" And then he says, "No, no, I read through them." <laughs> Because the attendant sees him and he just like flips through them like really quickly. It's like speed reading. But somebody like with a photographic memory, you know, just like look at it once and he, he absorbs it. And then he can remember where things are, quotes. He can instantly like remember what volume and page. And Tibetan texts, if you've ever seen them, are very different than Western texts in terms of being able to find things in them. Just to find something in a Tibetan text, you need like a, a, a genius because uh, in, the, in the West, you know, we have a binding that has the text name printed on it and then the cover has the, the name and all this information. And then you have a table of contents. Oh, what an amazing invention. You go to a Tibetan text, and they don't have a table of contents. And the title is like printed in the same typeface generally as the rest of the text on the first page. And it just like goes, there's the title, and then there's the text. And the author is at the end. The attribution to the author is at the end. And, you know, so there's no like uh, and, and there are page numbers, but you have no app, table of contents. You don't know where the chapters sections are. And then most texts are, are like multi-volumes. So you have like a text in three volumes. And and it'll just have a label on the side that will have like the shorthand name of the text. So also, you see these texts have very long names. And they would come up with shorthand names. And the shorthand names are highly uh, repetitive. And you would have to know the correct shorthand name in order to find a text among like a sea of texts. Anyway, um, in the course of a single month, he would always recite the entire collection of the collected tantras of the Nyingma school from memory as if it was like a mantra or, or a chant. So he's just like, uh, he's like a walking library, basically. Um, and then poetically presenting as Kensei Rimshe says on page 40 so it was that boarding the ship of an astonishing critical discernment Mipom set sail upon the great ocean of the sacred teachings the pitakas which means the the baskets or the collections of teachings of the greater and lesser vehicles of the mighty sage being the Buddha and the outer and inner tantras of the Mantrayana, together with the wisdom commentaries of the numerous accomplished scholars of both India and Tibet. He repeatedly examined the views and philosophical assertions of his own and other schools instead of just focusing on his own school as most students or people do in the Tibetan system, assessing the crucial points of, the, of their profound wisdom, whether specific to themselves or held in common.
between the different schools. With a certainty of valid knowledge based on scripture and reasoning, he investigated without confusion every faulty assertion arising from mistaken ideas or simply from a lack of understanding and taking whatever did not contradict the wisdom intention of the Tathagata and constituted the stainless view and meditation of the authentic path pleasing to the conqueror he distilled the essential richness of these precious and immaculate jewels. He accurately explained their crucial points, profound and vast, and offered them as a heritage to those of his virtuous disciples who were fortunate to be blessed with the same intellectual, uh, same analytical acumen, which probably was not that many people. <laughs> so that sort of summed it up, and uh, he has there's these quotes from himself. Um, he says, in my young days, there were many excellent masters around, but apart from the wisdom chapter, chapter of the way the Bodhisattva from Pachorimshe was foremost among learned Bodhisattvas. So on page 41 now, I did not study very much. <laughs> Greatest understatement of, of the year. And uh, he says, uh, an understanding of the difficult points of the doctrine naturally arose in my mind simply through a reading of the texts. And then the next paragraph, he says, it was at, a t at that time, moreover, that my refuge lord, the Vajradhara, Kensei Rinpoche, commanded me to compose textbooks for our own tradition. So, in obedience with my teacher's wish, and as a way to train my own intelligence, I composed some texts on the cycles of sutra teachings, holding within my heart only the precious doctrine of the conqueror. And so on and so forth. Um, so, skipping ahead... On page 44 in the middle, it says, Regarding the text of the orally transmitted teachings, the treasured teachings, and the pith instructions. So this is a, a way that the Nyingma teachings are classified. There's the oral transmission from the time of Padmasambhava, uh, but coming from his colleagues Vimalamitra and Vairochana. It's called the oral transmission or oral, orally transmitted teachings. And then the treasure teachings are the teramas, the, the, the very famous system of, of burying treasures in physical places as well as mind stream of students that Yeshe Tsogyal accomplished with him or for him. And then the pith instructions are the uh, practice instructions of the masters generation by generation of how to actually practice. Uh, Mipam Rinpoche radiated a wonderful light of wisdom endowed with the four reliances in a manner as all-embracing as space itself. So the four reliances is a very, very important scheme. And the four reliances are that we rely on the teaching, not the teacher. So just because somebody who you respect gave a teaching and stated something, you don't accept it just because somebody it was somebody you like who said it, but you analyze the teaching regardless of the teacher, or if it's somebody you don't like and they say something difficult to hear but, but true, 
weeks, you know, we try to understand and accept that regardless of the source. And then we rely on the word, oh, sorry, we rely on the meaning and not the words. If somebody uses very um, convoluted wording or very simplistic wording or very complex advanced wording, we don't let that influence our understanding of the meaning. Just because it was, you know, put in big words that we're not familiar with or that sound really nice in very nice prose or poetry doesn't mean that we then accept those. But instead we focus on the meaning of what's being explained in the, in the Dharma teachings. And then thirdly, we, we rely on the def, what's called a definitive Dharma or teachings, the presentation of the true nature of reality, of, of the way things are, as opposed to the provisional teachings, teachings that vary based on time and place or individual audience, uh, the audience that they're directed to. Like if you listen in on a on a teaching or instructions or an interview that's given to somebody else from a teacher or like a, a Q&A interaction between a teacher and a student, there may be very pointed instruction from that teacher to that student that's particular to that student. And that would actually be completely wrong for other students. And so that would be called a provisional teaching that's that's focused on a, a certain individual or time or place. So instead we try to focus on what is the definitive teaching? What is the teaching that that is uh, most helpful for achieving enlightenment? Is that which points out what is the true nature of reality? And how do we practice or achieve the understanding or experience of that true nature of reality. And then fourthly, and more practical is, how do we do that? How do we achieve that understanding, the experience of the true nature of reality? And the, the way to do that is by relying upon our wisdom mind, our non-conceptual mind, and not our um, consciousness, not our conscious mind that is so easily swayed by how, maybe how we feel that day or the context of a situation or what's going on in our life or um, other factors. But con our consciousness sort of understands things always within reference. There's always this reference, reference um, system of reference. How does this apply to me? How does, how does it do this or that in relation to this or that? And so consciousness operates in the world of reference points, but our wisdom, our non-conceptual primordial mind is the, the, the part of our being that has wisdom that understands the nature of reality, that is the experience of the nature of reality, and we try to rely on that. So the four reliance is a scheme set out by the Buddha in one of the sutras, and a very important scheme for how do we understand <clears throat> or deal with conflicting different types of teachings and teaching situations.
see. Skipping ahead. Um, some of the some of the texts that he studies and it, it uh, demonstrates that he studied texts from all different traditions. So he was basically uh, um, he took it upon himself as uh, his job to basically uh, present, clarify, strengthen, uphold, maintain, advance the 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 understanding and the view and the presentation and practice of the Nyingma tradition. But he doesn't restrict himself to the study of Nyingma texts and he studies the, the uh, Tantra of the Wheel of Time, the Kala Chakra Tantra, the main Tantra of the, the other, of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, Kensei Rinpoche has him write commentaries. In, in, I'm sorry, in addition to having him write commentaries, there's tasks like there's um, very difficult long texts, such as this one on the bottom of 47 to 48, written by Long Chenpa, called The Treasury of Wish Fulfilling Jewels, that um, is very hard to understand. And Kensei Rinpoche. Uh, knows that it would be of an immense benefit if somebody could, somebody with uh, very deep understanding would be willing and able to present a summary of it and explain it. And so Mipom appears and he's the guy. So he assigns him that task and he does that. And he does that with that text and a, a number of other texts. So different than commentaries, he does a, a summary. The author presents Mipom's excellence in debate, which turns out to be uh, one of his main skills. Then there's a, an interesting one on page 54. So Mipam Rimshe once visits Patro Rimshe, whose full name is uh, Jigme, or a full, uh, more common name is Jigme Chuki Wangpo, the king of scholars and of ordained adepts of Tibet in the region of Upper Dza, which is uh, a no part of northern, northeastern Tibet. He says to him, Uh, Patra Rimshe says to him, when I was young and although my intelligence had yet to ripen, nevertheless because of the weighty injunction of Vajradara Kyabje, Kyabje is like an honorific title of Kensei Rimshe, Kensei Wangpo, sorry. I composed commentaries on the wisdom chapter of the way of the Bodhisattva and other texts. Are they worthy of coincidence? And uh, 
I'm sorry. So this is uh, Mipom saying this to Patra Rimsha. I, I, I said that the wrong way earlier. Mipom says, so uh, I wrote these commentaries. Are they any good? Can you give me your opinion on them? <laughs> and he makes an offering to Patra Rimsha in, in the process of doing that. He offers him two pills. Um, a pill of Manjushri. And the Tibetans are into these little sacred dharma substances that they make in various very elaborate ritual ways when you uh, get to Vajrayana practice you'll experience some of these um, dharma pills but uh, he has a pill of Manjushri which uh, apparently is involved with wisdom consecrated by the practice of Kensei Wangpo and a pill of Vajrasattva are those coming pills from <laughs> they might be I, I don't know or if those, those specific ones yeah on the internet yeah it's just from uh, you have to go to the dark store. web <laughs> maybe the light web um, and a pill of Vajrasattva coming from a treasure revealed by Chokchur Lingpa and Patrimsha says to me wisdom did not manifest in me when I was young so there's little hope that it will manifest in me that it will do so now even if I take the Manjushri pill so I'm hopeless what a humble guy I mean he's like uh, explains the wisdom chapter over and over on the other hand I should take the Vajrasattva pill because my Samaya my commitment to my vows is weak and he eats it and he says regarding the books that you want me to uh, comment upon for you uh, it is as the saying go the quality of ghee is determined by fire the quality of a teaching is determined by a teacher now this guy here he's learned in the teachings of of the new translation school so you should debate with him so he totally deflects the, the decision <laughs> For now, and he has him debate with this guy, and they they turn out to be uh, of equal ability in debating the sutras. And so he says, "Well, well, this guy you're debating with, he just wrote a, a really famous, what's become a famous book on the great perfection of Dzogchen. So why don't you two debate on that, since that's his specialty?" And there, Mipom excels in him. And it's just sort of odd this whole thing of like who can do better than. You know who's better in debate than others and like what does that mean and why does that why is that important to these guys you know man they're just always competing one way or another right and, and you know then somebody asks him towards the bottom of 55 between me ask Pajaramsha between me and yourself who's the more learned and he says on sutras we're the same on tantras uh, there's a slight difference Mipam is more learned it's like they're always comparing each other to each other, themselves to each other in a strange way so here sorry this is the one on page 56 where he edits this uh, text by Long Chenpa Kansi Rimshe has him does another commentary and another text by Long Chenpa and let's see. Okay, so that we're 
brings us to the chapter on practice on page 61. In this degenerate age, those who have some slight training in the field of intellectual study make no effort at all on the practice that brings such knowledge into experience. He's talking about me. Uh, then again, there are some who, boasting at the little practice that they have done, regard any conventional learning, elementary or advanced, as something to be avoided, like a thorn in their eye. General Mipam Rimshe was at all times gripped by a determination to leave samsara forever. His mind was constantly imbued with a sense of impermanence, and whenever there was something to be done in the morning, he would say, if I'm not dead, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love sounds, that. Sounds like my, yeah, yeah. For for uh, when you get when you get up to our age, my mother used to, you know, be fond of, or my father, you know, like yeah. If I'm here, I'm still alive. I'll, I'll take care of it. <laughs> but there was always like a little threat there. I, I don't know if he had that same level of. Um, so he took no pleasure at all in distraction and dissipating pastimes and uh, dissipating pastimes. That's an interesting phrase. And uh, let's see. This this great quote about the benefit and the importance of solitary retreat. And there's this quote from a sutra that says, you know, if you should offer up, uh, you know, everything forever, it's not as good as taking seven steps in the direction of a solitary retreat with the intention of benefiting, being a benefit to beings. So in other words, everybody, you got to do solitary retreats sometime along your way. You know, these group retreats are great. That has become the norm these days. It's very hard to find places to do solitary retreat, but it's really the best. So do it when you can. You have a friend whose house, you know, they're going away and nobody's there. Hey, okay, I'll go stay there. <laughs> do a I solitary retreat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when you go on vacation, I'll come out there, okay? You got it. <laughs> Deal. Uh, let's see. I'm sorry. I was going to say, one of the first retreats when I, I after I came to New York, there was a, a, someone looking for someone in, uh, in someone in Vermont that needed someone to keep their wood stove going. Mm. Uh, so I was like, okay, sure, no problem. So I went up and I kept their wood stove going and we on retreat. Yeah, that's great, for, particularly for somebody in, from New York City to get out of the city and up to Vermont. That's the best. Yeah, that's neat. And that's where that's what uh, like cabin retreats are all about. It's basically just keeping fire going. <laughs> spent that's what you spend all your time doing. Um, let's see. So there was an interesting reference to talk songs. Here we go. Um, the second Buddha Padmasambhava arising in the form of Dorje Trollo. Oh, that sounds familiar. Placed under oath without exception all the gods and spirits of phenomenal existence and entrusted them with the guardianship of the teachings of the profound treasures. I read recently somebody who said, you know, he did that, but it didn't seem to work fully because then things deteriorated and there was the evil king with the persecution. You know, so even though he was the, the second Buddha, 
it didn't work fully. Anyway, I, I, I didn't really say that. Um, he blessed and empowered the land of Tibet as a great and sacred place of the Vajrayana, blah, blah, blah. He especially... Uh, the 13 places that bear the name of Toxong. Now, probably people think there's one Toxong. There's apparently 13 Toxongs, Tiger Nest. So Tiger's Nest Toxong is famous for being the place where Trungpa Rinpoche received the Sanam Mahamudra in 1968 in Bhutan. But it's one of 13 such Tiger Nests, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of tigers. They got a nest... They all have to nest somewhere, so it can't just be one place. They, you know, there's got to be a number of tiger nests that they can schedule up some time for. So, but he he goes to each one of them, and uh, there's a there's this one particular one that can't say Wangpo is connected with the Mipom then goes to, and. and uh, there's this phrase of the approach and accomplishment stages of the of the following sadhas on page 64. So um, this is a pe- uh, uh, pe- not a peculiarity. That's not really the right term, but it's a it's uh, something that's particular to the Nyingma way of doing sadhana practices. They have these two phases of sadhana practice of development or creation stage practice called approach and accomplishment and it's it's a variety of how you visualize your relationship with the deity and uh, say so practices both of those and uh, just lists uh, you know what turns out to be a, a short list compared to later lists of the different practices that he does uh, he during this year where he maintained silence, he recited the long mantra of Yamantaka a total of fifty million times. That's a lot. He lived at this place for thirteen years, and in all that time, he took tea no more than twice a day. Now, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Was that like saying that most Tibetans drink tea all day long and he only took two cups? Which I think it actually does mean that because if you if you go to Tibet or if you hang out with Tibetans, they do drink tea like all day long. But did that mean like nothing else, just two cups of tea all day? No food? I don't know. Anyway, they he thought it was important enough to mention that. Apart from a brief period of repose in the evening, where he uh, watched the evening news, uh, he devoted his time one pointedly to the approach and accomplishment practices. And uh, let's see. He spent a year here and a year there, and he practiced this and he practiced that practice. He performed the following sadhanas. The, the names, you know, the descri- the short descriptions of the sadhanas are a little intriguing, even though it sort of quickly gets boring or overwhelming, extracting the essence of Manjushri, uh, the daily practice of orange Manjushri. That's like your morning practice. You do an orange Manjushri in the morning with your breakfast. <laughs> should on, make fun- on a lot of those... should make fun of this. Yes, sir. On, on a lot of these, they're short. Right? They're not all long sadhanas. Some of them are like just a couple of sentences. I don't know about a couple of sentences, but I, I think that would probably be true where they are short practices um, as opposed to like 
the the main saunas in the tradition of Trungpa Rinpoche, there's there's two main saunas that he transmitted: the sadhana of Vajrayogini and the sadhana of Chakrasambra. And both of them are like about 150 pages, the liturgy that you would do. And <clears throat> um, so that that takes quite a while to do. And then there's a number of short sadhanas, like sadhana Mahamudra. That's like 20 pages or 10 pages. You know, so as Chris is saying, probably a lot of these are much are sh of the short variety as opposed to Chakrasambra and Vajrayogini. Just chanting of the liturgy takes quite a while. And so if you do a session, it's going to take like two to three hours just because the, the liturgy is so long as opposed to doing one of the shorter sadhanas. You know, we do the sadhana Mahamudra in basically 45 minutes, right? Separate from the accumulation of the mantra practices. Um, let's see. Mipam practice uh, concerning the cycle of meditation and recitation of most profound single syllable on page 66. Mipam Rimshe practice a set of teachings related to the creative power of awareness. So uh, let's see. Uh, 66. So uh, this, oh, I'm sorry, 142. Yeah. Most profound single syllable. I thought there might be a good footnote on that, but it's just the Tibetan. And so just, again, a, a long list of different sadhanas. And here you here it's a little bit easier to sort of skim them and see the sort of things he was doing. So he's big on Manjushri, obviously. He's an emanation of Manjushri, so he's uh, connecting with himself. He's getting to know himself. He's doing a little self-care in his sauna practices to himself. It's got the orange, it's got the white, and it's got Prajnaparamita as like a practice. Um, they saw the Manjushri seed syllable D, that's the seed syllable of Manjushri, and Mipam would often sign his name at the end of text by just D, that's the syllable, D-H-I-I-H. Not sure what Precious Harvest is getting at, saw the Manjushri syllable Mu, white Vairochana, Vairochana is another um, uh, one of the five Buddhas. Let's see, uh, Amitaya is a form of Amitabha, one of the five Buddhas. Vajrapani is one of the three main Bodhisattvas. Akasha Garba is the Bodhisattva of, uh, I think it's space, and Kshiti Garba is the Bodhisattva of earth. The, there's bodhisattvas of the elements, so space, earth. There's the vajra fist. There's this way of uh, holding your hand that is called the vajra fist. Amoga city is one of the five buddhas. Um, just uh, lots of different deity practices. On page 67, towards the bottom, to these were added certain sadhanas linked with the eight great bodhisattvas, which order saw some Akasha Garba, Maitreya, Shiji Garba, uh, wow, Sarva Nirvarana Vishkamben, <laughs> it's a tongue twister, Avalokita, 
being short for all of Lokita Shvara, Vajrapani, Samatabhadra, and Manjushri. The great peacock practice, the white parasol. Interesting names. Not that interesting, though. Eric, do you think yes. that part of why the um, they have all these lists organized this way is that people could use it as a like a sort of little syllabus, like, oh, this is a good order to do them in, or these are ones you should do together. Do you think that's part of what's going on here? That's a good a uh, good hypothesis. Like, why are they lists? I mean, to some... To some extent, the lists have certain coherence, like back in 67 in the middle. He also, <coughs> excuse me, practiced other sadhanas belonging to the Nyingma tradition. But that implies that there were some of the be- of Nyingma in the list before. Um, I don't know. I, I don't get that feeling that it was like, here's like a suggested menu for other people or... Um, the the only thing that you're that comes to mind is and which I wanted to mention is and you're reminding me of is that how does he remember all these and how does anyone else know all these practices and the, all these texts right and this is something that is a very uh, interesting part of the Tibetan tradition is that Tibetans are obsessive diary keepers which you wouldn't normally think of because, you know, they're supposed to be egoless, right? And, like, we sort of have this notion that, you know, keeping a diary is like you're sort of talking to yourself and, like, a little bit narcissistic. But for them, they they all, all of these teachers have diaries, and the diaries are what teachings they received from who, from whom, and what practices they did. And that's how we have these lists. Is they, they literally each of them write a book, and it's called the, the, charyik. I can't remember the term, but there's a term for it, which is the list of teachings, received and practices done, and they all have this, and they write the date and what teacher they got it from, and other relevant notes, and then that's how they create these biographies. And and they do it. They just like fill one notebook after another sort of thing. They obviously don't have spiral bound notebooks the way we do, but they have some system of doing this and they, they all do it. And there's there's an interesting article by uh, Janet Yatso, who's a great uh, uh, scholar, woman at Harvard, who's uh, written some uh, at least one very interesting article on this propensity for diary keeping that Tibetans have. She talks about <clears throat> this this uh, currently alive great teacher named Dojip Chen Rinpoche, who's one of the most highly revered teachers in the Nyingma tradition, and how she interviews him and asks about the diary and so forth and the practice. And, and he's like, it's just a totally ordinary. They all, it's like a totally common thing that they all do. And the number of recitations that he does is, is just mind-boggling. So on the top of 69, even the case of saunas where the required number of recited mantras was not specified. So basically, sadhanas or, or the empowerments for sadhanas each specify how many recitations you're supposed to do of the different mantras 
many sadhanas have more than one mantra that you're supposed to do that have different numbers of recitations. <clears throat> and then there's different processes of completing the practice after doing the main recitations and it's rather complicated. And so sometimes they don't specify and he just does 300 as a hundred thousand. That's a good number. And uh, let's see. In the next paragraph, he would recite each of the different hundred syllable mantras that sever the continuum of karmic obstruction 100,000 times together with their completing recitation. Um, so a hundred syllable mantra is a very long mantra. And there's a very famous hundred syllable mantra, which I just mentioned earlier, which is in the second nundro or preliminary practice in the mantra practice, the purification practice of Vajrasattva. Uh, but I found it interesting to see that there's other hundred syllable mantras. And then it says, and to this he added the recitation of the dharani of dependent arising, which he recited 1300,000 times. <clears throat> and uh, this is a, a peculiarity of the Tibetan tradition where they take this little summary verse of the Buddha's teachings that comes from the, from the really like the very earliest days of the Buddha after his enlightenment. And it comes from the, the story of Shariputra, who's the uh, Arhat most affiliated with wisdom and his uh, dear childhood friend Madhgalia Yana, sort of a tongue twister name, who uh, excels in uh, meditation. And uh, when they're young, they, they get interested in spirituality and they go, they say to each other, let's go in different directions and whoever finds enlightenment first comes back and tells the other guy. And Shariputra happens upon this, this novice monk of the Buddha. Novice meaning that he had just uh, taken monks' vows recently and started practicing and studying. And he's struck by his demeanor. He just has a very peaceful, uh, content demeanor and like open uh, countenance and radiant. And he says, asks him, you know, who's his teacher? He says, my teacher is the Buddha Shakyamuni. He says, what is this teaching? And he says, you know, I'm just a mere beginner and I don't really know anything. They they just had me memorize this one little ditty for you. I'll, I'll recite this ditty for you. And, he says, and it goes, all, all things which arise from a cause, the Buddha has explained the cause. And he's also explained the cessation of those same things you know and he's talking about the uh, the chain of interdependent origination the 12 nadanas that everything arises from causes and if you eliminate the causes then you eliminate the result which is what the chain of interdependent origination is all about and uh, then it ends with just a exclamation of like thus spoke the great uh, renunciant swaha and Shariputra gains enlightenment just hearing that once. And he's like, oh my God, thank you so much. And he goes and he finds Madhgaliyana. He says, hey, hey, I found him. And he repeats the little ditty and Madhgaliyana also achieves enlightenment. So they achieve the first level of enlightenment. Then they go find the Buddha himself and they, they listen to his teaching and achieve complete enlightenment. But it's, uh, it's this, becomes this, uh, 
uh, little mantra that uh, is included in many of the mantras that we do in these sauna practices and various practice and various chants that we do when you become a tantric in our tradition. And so I was sort of stunned to see that somebody did this mantra as like a separate mantra practice that I thought was pretty. So I thought that was pretty neat. The mantra of dependent arising, Dharni. And so then there's some sort of conclusion things on the bottom of page 70s. The author says, throughout his life, spiritual practice alone was the root and nerve of his entire existence. He brought to perfection the great power of the wisdom of the superior Dharmakaya, the inseparability of the purity and equality of all phenomena in both samsara and nirvana, all appearance and activity were for him an infinite display of the mandala of the illusory net of great bliss. What a cool way to say that he was like enlightened and everything was sort of an enlightened experience. An infinite display of the mandala of the illusory net. What's with this net? What's with the net? Well, don't they use, I mean, it's sort of like, uh, I mean, there's also the tradition of Indra's net, and I and I think there's a, the loose, there's a, I remember getting a practice, a Vajrasattva practice that was something like the illusory net uh, was the title of it. Yeah, so it appears all over. What is it with the net? I, I think it's a way of conveying interdependence. Yes, thank you. That's great. Yeah, understanding the the interdependence of you know the infinite <coughs> uh, infinite range of appearances as being a, a net, but you know this network of interconnections between all these different dharmas, and the dharmas are like the nodes in the net, and then the the connections are the the links between the nodes, the interactions between dharmas. <clears throat> In the earlier part of his life, he practiced the six Vajra yogas, yogas rather, as presented in the tradition of Naropa, the accomplished adept of the perfection stage of the fivefold class of Anuttara Tantra. Later, he implemented the yoga, the six-branch practice of the glorious Kala Chakra, which is the essential sap of the non-dual Tantras of Vajrasattva. And by, by such means, he brought to perfection the yoga of the channels, which are the inner pathways of the, of the psychic body, the subtle body. The winds are the energies that move along those channels of the inner body, and the essence drops are what uh, gets moved along by the winds through the, the channels. Of the self-arisen city of the Vajra aggregate, what does the, the footnotes say of the Vajra aggregate 192? The city of the Vajra aggregate is a place in, is a, is a city in central China. No, just kidding. 
is a poetic name for the subtle aspect of the physical body, which is composed of the channels, winds, and essence drops, and forms the basis of the advanced yoga practice of the perfection stage. A little bit circular, but okay. The self-arisen city of the Vajra perfecting in an instant the grounds and paths of Vajra Yogini. He therefore became the sovereign Haruka, Lord Haruka is like a male uh, deity, male meditational deity. The Lord of the Great Mandala that consists in the perfection of the seven qualities of union, resulting from mastery of the supremely unchanging wisdom that is bliss, sorry, that is emptiness supreme in all aspects conjoined with co-emergent bliss. All this Vajrayana language, like, what are they talking about? <laughs> What does it all mean? Emptiness supreme in all aspects is a code language for other emptiness, Zhentong, and the understanding of the indivisibility of Buddha nature and emptiness, conjoined with co-emergent bliss. Okay. Sounds pretty good. As a result of the blessings gained through reading the volumes of the precious collection of the Nyingma Tantras, the realizations of the wisdom of the ultimate lineage awakened in his mind thanks to this and through following the teachings of the great perfection, he brought to complete fulfillment the equality of awareness and emptiness, the state of openness and freedom of the ground of both samsara and nirvana and the great virtuosity of the four visions of spontaneous luminosity. So the four visions of spontaneous luminosity is a sort of secret language way of talking about the four stages of Dzogchen practice. Consequently, the three kayas, we know that the, th the kayas arose in his own direct experience and he actualized enlightenment endowed with the six special features within the expanse of the wisdom of the primordial Lord, the ultimate Manjushri, the lamp of self-arisen wisdom, endowed with the wisdom body. He is the great and universal sight of all the Buddhas and the charioteer of the Vajra essence of luminosity of the supreme vehicle. The, the uh, Vajrayana language is just intense, just like over the top, over and uh, just keeps going. Through the extremely feeble merit of his contemporaries, the prosperity in the world and its inhabitants was in a state of decay and the strength of Dharma much diminished, but through his inconceivable bodhicitta, Mipam Ripshe protected the beings of his time from the suffering that were the result of their karma and accumulated many ways. So he did all this meritorious stuff too at the same time as he's studying and practicing uh, like all the time. He offers 100,000 uh, candles or lamps and another 100,000 uh, offerings of incense and food as well as many 100,000 flower mandala offerings. And he made 5,000 circumambulations around the protector temple of Dzong Nam Gyal and the same number equally around the temple of 100,000 Buddhas at Katok Dorji Den. At the retreat center of Shechen Monastery while circumambulating the Mani Wall. <laughs> so the Mani Wall is a uh, is uh, Tibetans were in love with inscribing stones with mantras 
and thereby like creating sort of sacred places. And they would make these mounds of stones all inscribed with the, uh, what's called the Mani Mantra. The Mani Mantra is the uh, essence of the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, which is the most famous mantra of all of Vajrayana Buddhism. <clears throat> it's called the six-syllable mantra, and it's the mantra Avalokiteshvara, of compassion, the Bodhisattva of compassion, Om Mani Padme Hum. And so, uh, like if you ever go into it, like a Tibetan uh, antique shop or gift shop, you'll see these little stones with the this mantra carved on the stone. Anybody see these things? And those are usually knockoffs because you're not actually you're not able you're not supposed to or or legally. Uh, allowed to take the stones from these walls, even though there's thousands of them. But I guess if everybody did, it would diminish them. But so they'll have these huge piles of stones with mantras on them, or huge walls. This, In this case, it's like this wall. And it'd be like, you know, we have walls out in the woods where the farmers, like, collect stones and build to get them out of the way so they can grow crops. And they have walls of stones. In Tibet, they have walls of money stones. <laughs> Very strange thing. Um, and then the, on page seventy-four at the end, it says, "Of course, there's absolutely, absolutely no need to speak of the merits generated by Mipam Rishay's activities." which had so many objectives, whether in immediate or ultimate terms. It's a good way to end a chapter. There's no need to talk about anything else. So, so maybe we should try uh, for the remainder of the book, sort of accompanying, like splitting it up and having some of the life story as well as some of the uh, the Buddha nature texts. What do people think of that idea? Sounds good. Okay, so let's do that. And some of the other texts, actually, that uh, precede the Buddha nature text in this book. Liz, were you going to offer something? Some uh, Or anyone else? Okay. So you're going to reorganize the reading? Yeah, you know, for next week. Okay. Yeah, for next week, let's do uh, A Hidden Life, which is uh, like 17 pages. And then um, maybe we can do the selections on uh, Madhyamaka, which is another 16 pages. Is that right? 17, another 17 pages. Sounds good. Just swapping the B readings for the next two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And there's a number of Madhyamaka, of different little short Madhyamaka readings. So... And it's it's a good selection as well. So, okay, I'll put that in writing, but let's try that plan.
comments, questions, suggestions? In that very last sentence, where he says immediate or ultimate terms, is immediate, does that mean relative? In the end of that chapter, let's see. Which had so many objectives, whether in immediate or in ultimate terms. I got the feeling that meant more like actual literal time period, like immediate relating to um, like uh, things going on in that time period, particular time period, and that ultimate would be like um, culminating in enlightenment. They also mentioned, by the way, the, the compiling and the publication of Meepom's works, which was a, uh, a great accomplishment because he had such a volumin voluminous output. And uh, so his collected works are now preserved and, and available in Tibetan. But unfortunately, he didn't write in English. But many of his works are translated, and we saw in some of the handouts from earlier classes a list of, of his writings. There's a lot of stuff available by him now. It's really cool. In particular, he uh, has his commentaries on those five texts of Maitreya, the two ornaments, the two differentiators, and the one supreme continuum. His commentaries on those are being translated strangely by two translation committees, <laughs> which is really sort of a funny thing, that there's these two different translation committees that simultaneously came up with the same project of translating these five dharmas or texts of Manjushri along uh, Maitreya, sorry, along with commentaries of uh, Mipom. And one of the translation committees is including also the commentary of a famous Kempo named Kempo Shengda. But um, so there's, <clears throat> there are, I think, three of the five now available in duplicate in two different translations of those five. So they can coordinate, right, and split it up? Yeah, it's sort of sort of weird. <laughs> uh, you know, when there's so many cool texts that could be translated, it seems like such a shame when they duplicate that way. But, it's it's like it's it's like what Eva always says in the Taoist tradition. Like if people would stop retranslating the Tao Te Ching, it's been done enough times, and do some of the other ones, it would be great. You know. That's a really good point. Yeah, that that text has been translated so many times, and they still can't get it right. But no, just kidding. But there's a lot of. I mean, there's a ton of great texts, and she does a lot of different ones, obviously herself. But. Um, just so many people, they just go after that one. But I mean, it would be tough to have them. I mean, other than eighty-four thousand, you know, having some kind of coordination across all those translation groups, and I'm sure they have their stylistic preferences and all that. But still, yep. Someday, when you become emperor, you can make that happen. 
you can make the world be logical and people coordinate and work together instead of duplicate and compete and we can conserve resources if only if only yeah if only if only yeah <laughs> anyway enjoy the great weather and the freedom everybody uh, fully vaccinated now all right you go outside <laughs> no a couple of couple of holdouts still chris i'm, I'm in yet. such a remote area that i'm not that worried i figured i'll wait another month uh-huh okay we could we could send it to you fly it in maybe Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe we have time now for like a really uh, one bad joke that you made me remember, which is that there's this very pious, uh, God-fearing couple that lived in Louisiana during the, the flood, <clears throat> during the hurricane and the flood. That which one? Yeah, which one? What was the name of the of the Katrina. Katrina. Katrina, yeah. And uh, uh, as as the area that they lived in started to flood, you know, first the the fire department goes through the town and tries to get everybody to evacuate along with the police, and they're like, "No, we're God fearing. He's going to save us. We're going to stay here until he saves us." And they're like, "Oh, come on, please!" And there's no. And they can't get him to leave. And then uh, the fl the floodwaters rise, you know, and it's like up to the first floor of the house. So they're up in the second floor. And, uh, and the Coast Guard comes by, you know, like right in a boat, like right in front of their second floor window, you know, and a big, you know, loudspeaker, please come out so we can evacuate you and save you because it's just going to keep rising the floodwaters and you're not going to survive this. And he and his wife are like, no, 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 God is going to save us. I know he's going to save us. And they're like, okay, well, we can't force you. And then, then finally the floodwaters are, rise all the way up to the top of the second floor and they're out on the, on the little steeple chase on the top of the second floor to stay out of the water and this and the helicopter comes over you know and throws down a ladder another loudspeaker you know please come on we'll put you in the in the body cage you won't have to climb up the ladder we'll we'll take you to safety and they're like no we're going to be saved by god and finally they get swallowed by the waters and die and they end up in heaven and they they arrive at the pearly gates and and uh <laughs> And they, they uh, come up to the pearly gates and they see God and they're like, God, why didn't you save us? We had so much faith in you. We held out so that you could save us. We didn't give in. And, and we trusted in you. Why? What happened? And God like looks up and just says, what do you mean I didn't save you? I sent the police and the fire department. I sent the coast guard i sent the helicopters <laughs> anyway that we could do that for you chris so on that note let's dedicate our merit and say good night <clears throat>
By this merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the flood waters of samsara, may I free all beings. Is that how it goes? Something like that. Thank you. Have a good evening. Take care. Thank you.